Millie, I'm really excited about today's podcast. After all this time, we're finally going to get an answer to the greatest question of our time. Randy, I already know that answer. I can't believe that you don't know that the answer to life, the universe and everything is 42. Of course I know that one, Lily. And someone once told me what the question actually is, but I'm sorry, I'm I'm sworn to secrecy. And actually, I have no idea if it's the right question either. But what I'm talking about is we're finally going to have a chance to figure out if what we've built with this podcast actually matters. And that's because our guest today is Ben Foster, partner at Prodify and one of the authors of the book, Build What Matters. Aha. Uh-huh. And we're talking to him about vision and strategy and so much more. But I propose that you, our beautiful and wonderful listeners, answer a question for us. After you listen to this episode, please let us know what have you built that matters. You can toot, tweet or post on LinkedIn. And remember to tag us with MTP Pod. But first, listen to our chat and let's get right to it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So just a quick question before we get started. Can you just give us a little introduction? How did you first get into product and what are you up to these days? Yeah, you know, everybody who's been in product for as long as I have, which now is 25 years, I'll just go ahead and date myself right out of the gate. Um, <laughs> you know, they always have a story for how they got into product because product really wasn't a thing back at that time. So I was fortunate enough to get hired at a company that was uh, doing financial portfolio analytics software and I had majored in statistics. And so that was kind of helpful on the phones for support. But when the phones weren't ringing, um, they had me doing QA on this product that they had bought. And, uh, I don't know. One day, bug filing turned into feature requests, turned into ideas for the next kind of things that we could do with the product. And eventually, I had somebody from the product management team literally come over to my desk one day and say, how would you like a job in product management? And my response to that moment was, what's product management? <laughs> um, but uh, the rest is history. And it sort of like, you know, took me to uh, all the things that I've been able to do since. And what are you up to these days? Well, over the last 10 years, I've divided my time between operational product leadership roles and advisory work through a company that I co-founded called Prodify. Uh, and now I focus really just exclusively on running Prodify, which is that advisory practice. Um, so we really help teams with four different things. We help them with mentorship, uh, you know, founders, CEOs, heads of product. Uh, we help them with building up a product organization or improving their operations or coaching teams. Uh, we guide product leaders on setting their vision and their strategy. And then more and more, we've actually found that there's a lot of folks that are interested in helping uh, or having us help them with fractional VP of product roles and things like that. So I often see myself kind of like stepping into those or other folks on my team doing the same. And I was just learning about fractional um, CPA roles. Just um, explain a little bit more about what that is. 
Well, I think at scale, you know, when you have a relatively large team, it makes sense that you would have an in-house CPO. I think that it sometimes the smaller scale, or let's say when you're building up a brand new business unit that requires its own product leader, you might be in a position where you really just want to kind of like jumpstart things immediately. And somebody who's had experience kind of like, you know, filling that type of a role, but where they're not necessarily needed 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And instead it's kind of like, hey, we just really need to kind of get the ball rolling here. And we're doing it at a smaller scale. Uh, that's often the type of uh, relationship that we found that a lot of companies really benefit from. But usually it's a situation where you kind of like jump in, you provide that role and it's intended to be a short term kind of thing. It's like, you know, maybe four months, five months, and it finishes with hiring your own replacement and making sure that they're actually set up, you know, to, to be successful on their own. Nice. So you must see an awful lot of businesses um, and how they perform. or not perform Um, and one of the things you've written about is the top 10 dysfunctions in product management I love that it's the top 10 it's like not all of them but just you know (laughs) the best ones (laughs) so tell us a little bit about these yeah absolutely you know do you want me to just run through the top 10 yeah let's do it let's go at the the risk of asking you to do your greatest hits I think it would awesome. be a lot yeah, of fun, it's like, actually. It's like the worst hits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, great. Well, hey, you know, we, we've all been guilty of these things, or, or sometimes I think product management finds themselves in situations where they, where they really feel the, the presence of these dysfunctions, but they don't really know exactly what to do about them. So I'm just going to rattle them off real quick, and I'm guessing that these are going to resonate reasonably well. The first one is what we call the hamster wheel, and that's kind of like the obvious one that's been written about a whole bunch, which is output over outcomes. Uh, number two is the counting house. That's things like an obsession with purely internal metrics. Number three, we call the ivory tower, and that's misguided assumptions in place of actually doing real discovery work. Uh, Number four is the science lab, almost like experimentation for experimentation's sake. Number five, the feature factory. I think that one probably speaks for itself. We've all probably been there and seen that one. Uh, Number six, the business school. This is um, kind of like I don't know, summarized as spreadsheetocracy, if you will. (laughs) My... (laughs) Yeah, my, my personal favorite is number seven, the roller coaster. And I think this is when agile methodologies are taken to the absolute ridiculous extreme where it's just like pivot, pivot, pivot. And all you do is sort of like fail faster and faster and faster <laughs> until you find up you know, yourself exactly where you started at the end of the day. Um, number eight, the bridge to nowhere is kind of like over engineering for a future that never comes. Number nine, mm-hmm. the negotiating table. This is where you're trying to make the most vocal stakeholder the least unhappy. And then number 10, the throne room, which you can probably imagine is that person with the biggest title, but also the least context is the person who ends up making all the decisions when it comes to product. So those are the things that I've seen. Those are kind of like the top 10 best hits, if you will. And I feel like I've definitely been in environments where we've had quite a few of these going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So... um are these kind of like 10 different things or are they are they kind of like recipes for different sort of startup environments? And <laughs> like, how do we sort of recognize them and I, I guess sort of fix them? You know, um, the metaphor I use is it's kind of like, you know, it's like going to the doctor. You know, you might go because you feel like you're running into a variety of different symptoms, right? And you you know what you're experiencing, right? It's pretty obvious when you sense it. You know, maybe you've got a rash, or maybe you feel like you've got a fever, or maybe you're you know you're sneezing and coughing, and so you you experience the symptoms, and and certainly all the symptoms feel like they're very different from one another. 
But when you go to the doctor, they might realize that there's just one diagnosis that explains all of them at the same time. And I think the same kind of thing really happens when I get into talking to different product teams as they say, you know, we're really facing this one over here. We've got this other problem over here, you know, seven out of these 10 all resonate. But it tends to be the case that they're all really manifestations of the same single underlying problem. And to me, that's always been a missing product vision and strategy. And these are all just different ways in which that void gets filled. You know, when, when there isn't a clear direction of where the product team is going to go, then of course the CEO is going to step in as being that, you know, that person in the throne room or the stakeholders are going to jump in and say, well, if you don't tell me exactly what we're doing, then I want you to do this sales driven need to go win this next deal instead. Right. You know, these are the ways in which these things kind of like get filled in. So they're all different. They all feel different, but I think that often the solution is the same one solution to try to address any of them. Okay, so it's same one solution, but I think you're talking about two different things, actually, which is the vision and the strategy. And we've talked about this a few times before, but it's always good to get somebody else's take on it. So what is the difference between a product vision and a product strategy? Well, you're definitely right to call me out on that. They are two different things without question. And, you know, I talk, I talk about them lumped together because they tend to be either, too, you know, there together or they're missing together. But people really make a mistake of thinking about these things as, as you know, being one and the same. And the reality is that they're quite different. So in my view, um, a product vision is like planting a flag somewhere else. And we'll call that point B, where you're standing at point A today. And point A is how, like how your product actually is in the moment. Point B is where you want your product to be. And, you know, you, you sort of declare these are the, these are the facets. These are the elements. These are the, the descriptors of what that ideal solution is going to look like. This is where we're heading towards. And then the strategy is kind of like the general path that you take to get there, right? It's kind of like your plan for how you go get there. And, and, you know, the example that I've used on this, um, just from my own personal life is, you know, we did a road trip across the United States, kind of like that movie vacation with Chevy Chase. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the first decision was where do we want to go? You know, we might go from the East coast to the West coast and back to the East. Okay. That's great. Like that's the vision of what we, what we have in mind. But the strategy that we took was one that allowed us to hit different kinds of, you know, cities along the way or different kinds of national parks and things like that. And there are these milestones that are really important when you think about this back as a company of what are the things that you need to accomplish along the way there so that you make sure that you're actually staying on track and so that you have these new points of visibility as you kind of like make stepwise progression towards this to then reassess whether that vision is actually still the right one or not. So let's let's dig into the vision a little bit first, then we'll get to the strategy. What makes a really good product vision and in most companies, should you have one or do you have ones at different levels? Yeah, you know, I think, well, I'll first answer the question about, I think, what makes a really great product vision. And in my view, um, well, there are tons of things, but I'll, I'll cover kind of like the top three in this case. And I'm choosing these three because I think that most companies tend to get it wrong in these spots. Um, the first one is they make it about themselves rather than about their customers. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had a kickoff meeting with a founder or a CEO. And I say, you know, walk me through your vision. And they're like, oh, it's really simple. We want to get to $200 million ARR in the next three years. And I'm like, no, no, that, that's not a vision. That's the byproduct of you being successful at achieving your vision. But your vision has to be grounded and sort of like based in in your customer's um, journey. You know, what, what's the experience that you're going you're gonna to deliver to them? What's the value that you're going to provide to them? How are you going to make their lives better at the end of the day, right? You have to kind of like focus on your customers. Um, so that's always number one. Number two is that I think a lot of times these visions that I see companies producing are 
they're more like roadmaps. They're more like, well, these are the five features that we want to go build and here are the, you know, new markets that we want to move into, et cetera. But they're not really bold. They're not really long term. And I almost think that it has to be so bold that it's not even possible to completely validate it in the moment, right? You should be taking a large bet about how you can make something significantly better. The, the language that we tend to use is it should be 10x better for your customers, you know, in some particular way. And if you're not kind of like shooting for that, then I kind of feel like you're almost like doomed to fail because you haven't really shot for the stars. Uh, you kind of like held yourself back to some extent. And then the last part is that it really needs to be colorful and, and vivid and, and sort of like rich and detailed. And, you know, I think a lot of companies mistake a product vision for a like a mission statement. You know, it's, it's not a one-liner. It's not a paragraph. I've had vision documents that sometimes are 20 pages long, or I've had presentations that are 40 slides, you know, that kind of go through the major elements of what the, the product solution needs to be at the end of the day. And it's not about, you know, being anti-agile or anything like that. It's not about sort of like saying these are exactly what the UI, you know, is going to look like, or here's exactly the feature set that we're, you're going to have, you know, et cetera. What it's really about is saying, here's the experience that I want my customers to be able to have through my product. They're the superhero. My product is their superpower. Let me explain to you exactly how it works, right? And I think that the more rich you can make it, then the less chance there is for misalignment with your team. You know, if, if Tesla came out with a, with a vision for their car that said, we're going to have a car that no longer needs to go to gas stations to fuel. Well, there's a lot of different ways that that could have been interpreted. And this is obviously kind of like an extreme example, but you know, one team could be working on a nuclear powered car at the same time that another team is working on a car that's actually the size of a large truck, you know, that just has one massive battery in it at the same time as somebody else is working on a car that can refuel while it's still driving down a highway. Right. So there's all these different ways in which those visions can be interpreted. And I think that those one liner kind of like statements just don't end up not really doing the company a service. It's great to have a mission, but you've got to follow that up with a really rich and detailed vision as well. So when does a company need a product vision? Because presumably like companies that where the product is the company is the business, mm -hmm. they, the business vision is the same as the product vision. Um, is it when companies are larger and they have multiple products that you kind of want a vision per sort of product? Yeah, I think that when a company gets large enough, often the product strategy and the company strategy will eventually diverge. I mean, you know, look at a monolithic company like Procter & Gamble or something like that, right? They have all these different physical products and they're going to have their own product vision for each of those things, um, which is going to be, you know, different from the company vision or the kind of like company strategy, if you will. But I think it's actually surprisingly late that that kind of thing happens. You know, you might have um, a lot of companies really are about one single product. I mean, think about these massive multi-billion dollar valuation companies like Slack, you know, for example, mm -hmm. which is really kind of like one major product, right? Um, and, or you might have elements of different parts of the product that are sort of like differentiated enough that it's worth having a vision for each of them independently because they're almost like different um, categories of the vision. Maybe a good example of that would be like a marketplace like eBay, right? Where they have a seller vision and here's the value proposition that we're going to have to this type of customer that's over here. And then there's a buyer value proposition. There's a, there's a buyer vision that gets sort of like set along with that. Now what's key of course, is that they actually work together, <laughs> that they're actually, yeah. you know, going to be in unison because otherwise then, you know, you're going to have some problems where maybe the way in which you'd go achieve the buyer strategy is something that's going to 
be antagonistic with with the seller persona, you know, et cetera. So, you know, those things have to be sort of like in lockstep to some extent. But I think that you do as the company gets larger and larger have an ability to differentiate. But it is surprisingly late when I think, you know, for a tech company when the product strategy and the company strategy begin to diverge. Mm. As a product leader, you want regular insights about how people are using your product. But when you don't have the capacity for ongoing UX research, where can you turn? AnswerLab is a UX research agency with the expertise companies rely on for scaling user research capabilities and giving actionable user insights. The experienced team of UX strategists, researchers, and research ops professionals bring a human-centered approach to research design, recruiting, and interviewing the right participants, and sharing results with product teams at the world's leading brands. Visit answerlab.com forward slash MTP to learn more and fill in a form for your chance to win a free ticket to Mind the Product San Francisco 2023. Use promo code MTP. That's answerlab.com forward slash MTP. And do you find that if you, I mean, well, I guess a couple of questions, who should be creating that product vision? And I've always kind of struggled personally to put a product vision together unless there was a really clear business strategy. Mm-hmm. So is it possible to kind of put together, I'm thinking of all my <laughs> peers and colleagues out there who don't necessarily have clarity on the business strategy, but want to put together some clarity around the product that they're working on. Like, is that possible? Or do you really need to just like work out what the business strategy is before you can come up with a clear and valuable product vision? Well, it certainly helps the more context that you have. You know, you're less likely to develop a, a product vision that's not going to be nonsensical given a business strategy. But honestly, without the documentation for a pro- for a company strategy, you know, like a financial strategy or something like that being packaged, I think it's perfectly feasible to create a product vision that totally makes sense, right? And in fact, I've actually seen it go the other way, which is, you know, product leaders might say, I don't want to piece this together because I have all these unanswered questions. You know, I need to know what our horizon is. And I know we need to know whether we're trying to get, you know, a 100x return on this business or a 10x return. And I need to know, you know, whether we're going to, you know, grow, uh, you know, domestically first and increase our market within uh, you know, different categories in the US or whether we're going to go, you know, move to an international, you know, multi-geography kind of like, you know, direction first. The reality is sometimes it goes the other way where you build your product vision and the product vision, it's almost like the process of creating that vision is one that actually identifies why these questions are so critical. And Mm. only in going through that, do you then realize as an executive team that these are critical questions that you now need to go answer. So what I've seen a lot of times is that there's not as much pressure to answer these kinds of questions because it's kind of like, well, what decision is really hinging on this? And as you piece together that product vision, you kind of clarify, this is the set of decisions that are hinging on this. These are the kinds of things that we need to know. And I think it's actually a great way for a product leader to really be the champion of setting the business strategy as a company. Okay, so let's let's dig into the strategy as well. What makes a good product strategy? And and I'm going to ask again, one strategy, different strategies at different levels. But <laughs> let's start off with what makes a good one first. Yeah, sure. You know, I think what makes a really good strategy is is certainly a few things along the same lines of vision. I'll, I'll again 
hit my top three on this. Um, I think the first one is that it has to be a realistic. You know, if your vision is bold and long term and aspirational, you know, et cetera, that's all great. But then you're going to naturally get this question of like, is it even achievable? It's like, we're going to go climb this mountain and you're looking at a sheer face and you're saying, I don't even know how we're going to go make this happen. Right. And so a strategy kind of shows it illustrates a way in which it actually is realistic. Um, and so you kind of like describe the steps that are possible to go make it happen. You know, I think probably the best example is not whether it's not a product vision or, you know, et cetera, would be like, you know, saying that we're going to put a man on the moon. Right. It's like, it seems like that's impossible. Right. But then what you do is you turn it into milestones. And first thing you do is you get a person into orbit. And the next thing you do is you send, you know, an unfly, you know, an unmanned spaceship, you know, up, up into space, you know, et cetera. So you sort of figure out what these phases are going to look like. And I think that's really part two here is saying, what are the phases of completion? Because it's not just a matter of hitting the business numbers that you're trying to hit, you know, derive from the realization of this product vision down the road and sort of like breaking that up into saying we're going to get 20% of the way there each of the next five years. You know, the reality is the milestones that you make are more product oriented milestones. So you need to state what those things are going to be. You know, a good example in a business context would be, you know, you've got some company that has ambitions to use AI to do something revolutionary within a specific space. And if you back yourself off of that vision, that's great. But, you know, AI models are trained off of training data sets. Well, where are you going to get the training data set from and how large does that data set need to be? Okay, so then you kind of back off of that. Well, how many customers do we need to go make that happen? Well, how are we going to get those customers if they're not having a willingness to pay to kind of like give us that data? Why are they going to give us that data in the first place? Oh, I know we need to go create this freemium solution that's going to make that possible so we can get that kind of scale of data. And so as you kind of walk through, it's it's really that process of realizing these are the phases of the strategy that are super important for us to get to, because each one is going to sort of like pave the way for the next milestone of that strategy to be achievable so we can eventually realize our vision. And then I think the last thing, and this is often forgotten about by product teams, is that it's not just the risk that you have the wrong vision in the first place or the risk that you have the wrong strategy to get there. There are very practical risks with running a business as well. I mean, COVID <laughs> happened, right? And it kind of like upended everything, right? Or, you know, the tech industry had this, this you know, recent kind of like, uh, you know, issued this, this debacle, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, just sort of like imploding over the course of a couple of days, right? It's kind of like amazing. So you want to make sure that you're that you're resilient in a way as well. And I think the best way to be resilient as a product team delivering this strategy is to make sure that you're demonstrating ROI at every stage. So that if you ever got stopped, you know, by your CFO or whatever and said, show me why this is still worth, you know, continuing to make these investments in, you could actually answer that question, right? You need to not just sort of say, no, trust me, don't worry. In, th in three years, you'll be really thankful looking back that we did this. Like that's not going to fly in these kinds of situations, right? You need to make sure that you're demonstrating ROI at every step along the way. And there are plenty of ways to do that. It's just a constraint that you should be considering at the, at the outset. ROI all along the way. That sounds like it's as much art as science or it's the part that we miss a lot of the time. Is it basically the same idea of what we've seen of, you know, the good MVP of you start with the skateboard, then you go to the scooter before you go to the the, the motorcycle and the car? Yeah, you know, sometimes it is. I, I think that that can often be the case. Um, it also depends, you know, a lot of times companies are building a product vision and a product strategy when they already have a product or they already have product market fit, right? So you might be um, launching an entirely new product line 
and thinking about moving your product from a single product to multiple products, you know, et cetera, right? Uh, and an entire portfolio. I think what's important is that you don't sort of say, hey, this is going to be a lot more efficient if we did all the technical debt work first for the next two years. And only after doing that will we then build on this like beautiful, wonderful, you know, base of code. Well, guess what's going to happen is in 18 months, you're going to have the rug pulled out from under you because the board's going to say, you know, I'm not really seeing the, 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 you know, the outcome from this. You know, sometimes it ends up being that case, like you said, of kind of going from a skateboard to a car. Um, but sometimes it's a matter of making sure that you're, as you're doing your development, you're thinking about the full stack of the value, right? This goes from delivering the platform capabilities to thinking about the functional capabilities that are there to making sure that there's actually a go-to-market piece to this as well, right? Because you don't want to sort of like build everything, not have the go-to-market piece defined. Um, and then the reality is there's no sort of like, success metrics that you can actually look at. And, you know, again, people just pull the rug out from under you. Um, but interestingly, when you're, if you're focused like purely on kind of demonstrating ROI and you're, it's a numbers game, um, perhaps it's like one of the dysfunctions is the business school. I don't know whether it fits <laughs> into that, but I feel like then potentially, you know, addressing tech debt, as you said, or even like, you know, including innovation, in your roadmap could get sidelined. So how do you balance, um, you know, all of the work that you need to do um, and, and make space for the kind of the operational work mm. and the, the kind of innovation work, both of which don't necessarily always have immediate like ROI indicators uh, straight away. I mean, I guess operational, maybe you could argue that that does um, in quite a few occasions, but um, sometimes it's not as black and white as that. Yeah. You know, let me try to synthesize a few things here. I think there are three types of product development work that product teams effectively prioritize. Um, and rarely is it broken up into these three buckets, but I think there's a lot of value in doing so. The first of those is what I call the innovation bucket. And that's everything related to vision and strategy, right? It's kind of like you set your strategic milestones and getting to that next milestone, whatever it takes to go make that happen. Those are those things that show up in your roadmap that are related to that innovation bucket. But there are two other buckets that are out there. I think the other one I refer to is an iteration bucket and the other one is an operations bucket. So iteration is all those kinds of relatively small scale improvements to your existing product that you could make that are usually fairly easy to quantify what the benefit's going to be. They're fairly easy to quantify what the level of effort's going to be, et cetera. You know, that's a situation where prioritizing using like a rice model or something like that is actually a very reasonable methodology because you think you kind of know what you're working with. It's, it's relatively easy to scope everything out on both the effort and the value side. And then there's things that are in the operation bucket, and that includes all the things like the technical debt or, you know, um, going back and replacing deprecated third-party APIs and, you know, things like that. Um, or even sometimes just building operational tools to try to improve um, or lower the cost of goods sold, right, uh, of, of managing your product. So there are these different types of investments that you need to make. And my thesis is that the best way of prioritizing them is not to try to prioritize them one against another against another. And I've seen, you've probably seen the same thing. Teams tie themselves into knots trying to figure out, you know, which is the most important priority, this very low level, you know, effort kind of thing. That's just a small minor improvement to a join flow that's over here. Or do I work on this, you know, 
sensational new feature or new kind of like product that we think is going to be completely game changing within our space? Or do I work on this big chunk of technical debt that's kind of like, you know, been blocking us for the last couple of years? Well, that's a really hard decision to make. And that's because you're comparing apples and oranges and bananas. And my take would be that the best way of making sure that you actually get the right mix of each of those things is to simply make a top-down allocation. What percentage of your capacity should be going towards innovation? What percentage of your capacity should be going towards iteration? And what percentage of your capacity should be going towards operation? So, Ben, one one more question about uh, balancing these three buckets before we move on. Do you balance them within teams or across teams? As in, do you have one Mm. team sometimes working on the innovation stuff and one team working on operational stuff? You can do it that way. And I think that that's okay if that's the right thing to do. You know, I think it depends on the people that you have on your team. It depends on the level of investment that you need to have. I'll say that the the benefit of splintering it that way, where maybe let's say you had three different product teams and you might have one team working on one and one team working on another, is that it's often the case that the improvements to the existing product have a lot of urgency behind them because you're trying to show, you know, some sort of like, you know, meaningful uh, value that you're delivering, et cetera. Or let's say a sales team is pressuring the team to say yes to a bunch of things that show up in RFPs to kind of like modify the product. And one of the ways that you can address that is to sort of have different teams that are focused on different elements of this so that you can ensure that you're protecting the investment that you need to make in your long-term roadmap. You know, there's actually a, a company that I'm working with right now where that's exactly the recommendation that I had given to them, given the nature of, of how they're working. Um, but there are other situations in which I think you could say, hey, I, I want each of you to balance this on your own because they might be responsible for different areas of the product or or the value proposition of the product itself. Like when I was recently at Whoop, you know, we had about a 25 product management team, you know, we had 25 product managers on the team. And so it was broken up into different directors of product that were responsible for different major areas. And I didn't want it to be the case that all innovation was happening in just this one area and all iteration was happening in this other one. You know, I basically told them they also needed to make sure that it was something that was uh, evenly split within their respective groups. So it just kind of depends on the situation, I would say. Yeah, I found that when I've been managing teams where we had uh, one working on an innovation thing and one working trying to clear up debt, it was really hard for the team that was working on debt to feel motivated and then really hard totally. for the innovation team to feel grounded at the same time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think you're totally right. You know, there's the reality of just how people actually work, right, and what motivates them. And I think you've got to respect those realities as a product leader. And I guess the amount of time that you spend in each of these different areas would depend on the stage of the business as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there's, you know, the, the, the follow-up question that I often get when I say you should allocate a certain percentage to each of these, they say, okay, great. Well, tell me what the right percentages are. And a lot of times I, (laughs) you know, I, I point back to the company and say, well, what stage are you at? Because if you're in a zero to MVP kind of like stage, right? I mean, everything you're doing is innovative. Like you haven't even launched your product, right? You're like, you're creating something that's brand new from the, from the ground up here. So almost everything shows up in that innovation bucket because what are you even iterating on? You don't have any customers there to give you feedback yet. There's, you know, you're not worried about solving technical debt type issues when it comes to the operations bucket because you just want to get something out the door as quickly as you can. So in that state, I would say that it's almost like 90% innovation, right? And maybe it's 10% iteration and and 0% anything else. But when you get to these later stages, whether that's, you know, going from your minimum viable product to product market fit, you know, it's going to be a little bit different. I think a lot of times when you've launched your product, you have that MVP out there, but it's almost like you have 
kind of like customer feedback debt. <laughs> There's all this kind of like feedback that you wished you had been able to collect so far that you hadn't been able to because you were so busy in this innovation mode that now you almost like need to make good on that. And you need to kind of like flip to really working on a lot of addressing feedback that you're getting from your market to try to make sure that it's actually going to work for them. So I would say the, the script flips in a lot of those kinds of situations. But once you're post product market fit, it ends up being kind of like an even split across these buckets of innovation, iteration, operation, because usually there's so many different directions you can go, right? You say, do we expand to include more products? Do we expand the size of our market? Do we expand, you know, the, the feature set that we're going to have? You know, do we go from B2B, you know, SMBs to enterprises, you know, and so on, right? So there's so many different directions that you can move that it ends up auto almost automatically being an even split between those things. And then I think at the very mature stages of a product, the reality kind of sinks in of you're trying to make it as profitable as you can. You have a lot of technical debt that's sort of like accumulated over the course of years. And so <laughs> operation, you know, starts to take up the majority of, of the time uh, just out of necessity. But I think that's where like that S curve of innovation really starts to show up is because you say, well, I want to be innovative, but maybe this isn't necessarily the right product to be making that innovation upon. You should be trying to kind of like squeeze what you can out of this product that you have, but you should be thinking about what are the new kinds of things that we can start investments in right now so that we can ensure that we have across the portfolio a nice even balance between innovation, iteration, and operation. Ben, you mentioned a couple minutes ago uh, your experience at Whoop, and we really want to dig into that, and we want to talk a bit more about some of the different scenarios you might be in as a product leader driving this balancing and vision and strategy. But that's going to take longer than we have left today. So everyone, you're going to have to come back next week for part two of this. Tune in next week for part two, where we dig into why your CFO should be your best friend and how to make that happen. Why your product team should be actively involved in creating the strategy, even if they aren't that experienced and many more things that are top secret until you listen to the episode. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>